Amen. Well, if you'll turn in your copy of God's Word to 2 Samuel chapter 12. 2 Samuel chapter 12 will be our text this Lord's Day as we uh, continue in our study of 2 Samuel. If you were with us over the last few Lord's Days, you know that we're at the point now where uh, David has been confronted by Nathan. Uh, he's been caught red-handed in his sin by the Lord. Uh, his sin had displeased God, his sin with Bathsheba, his sin of murdering Bathsheba's husband Uriah in order to try to cover his sin. But now David has repented. Uh, we talked last week about how there's a difference we see in God's treatment of Saul and David, and I think that difference hinges on the fact that uh, David genuinely repented. And so today we're going to see more about that repentance as we walk through this passage and as we're reminded that even though at this point David has repented there is still a consequence for his sin and the consequence is is rather devastating and so we're going to look at this today together as we consider what God would have for us to learn from his word today and so out of reverence for God's word if you're able to if you would stand together as I read for us the second half now of 2 Samuel chapter 12, we pick up uh, after the prophet Nathan has confronted David and David has repented and, and now Nathan's job is done. He, he goes back to his house and we pick up there in the second half of verse 15. And the Lord afflicted the child that Uriah's wife bore to David and he became sick. David therefore sought God on behalf of the child and David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. And the elders of his house stood beside him to raise him from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. On the seventh day the child died. And the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they said, Behold, while the child was yet alive, we spoke to him, and he did not listen to us. How then can we say to him, The child is dead? He may do some harm to himself. But when David saw that his servants were whispering together, David understood that the child was dead. And David said to his servants, Is the child dead? They said, He is dead. Then David arose from the earth and washed and anointed himself and changed his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. And then went to his own house and when he asked, they set food before him, and he ate. And then his servants said to him, What is this thing that you've done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive, but when the child died, you arose and ate food. And he said, While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, Who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live? But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba, and he went into her and lay with her, and she bore a son and called his name Solomon. And the Lord loved him and sent a message by Nathan the prophet, so he called his name Jedidiah because of the Lord. Now Joab fought against Rabbah of the Ammonites, and took the royal city. And Joab sent messengers to David and said, I have fought against Rabbah. Moreover, I have taken the city of waters. 
Now then, gather the rest of the people together and encamp against the city and take it, lest I take the city and it be called by my name. So David gathered all the people together and went to Rabbah and fought against it and took it. And he took the crown of their king from his head. The weight of it was a talent of gold, and in it was a precious stone, and it was placed on David's head. And he brought out the spoil of the city, a very great amount. And he brought out the people who were in it, and set them to labor with saws and iron picks and iron axes, and made them toil at brick kilns. And thus he did to all the cities of the Ammonites. Then David and all the people returned to Jerusalem. You would pray with me. Father, as we continue to consider the consequences of David's sin, the death of David's child, I pray that you might help us to learn from your word today, to see how even in difficult and hard passages like this, there is much for us to learn and apply, and that we would do that, especially in regards to what it truly means to repent of sin. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. I was looking at the calendar not long ago and realized that uh, today marks the 11th year of my first sermon here at Bloomfield Baptist Church. Uh, 11 years ago, I stood here at this, well, not this pulpit, but it was a little rickety music stand. We had to fix that rather quickly. Uh, but this pulpit came soon afterwards, but... Uh, Eleven years ago, I preached my first sermon here. It was on Matthew chapter 5. It was the first in a series of sermons uh, that I preached on the Beatitudes. I mean, the Beatitudes are a passage of Scripture that when you approach them as a preacher, it's a sermon that kind of writes itself. It's one of those passages that you come to, and it's very evident and clear what you're going to preach from. As I considered that sermon, and about 500 sermons I've preached since then, I was reminded that there are a lot of passages that we come to in God's Word together, and, and it's real clear what needs to be proclaimed. It's real clear the points that need to be made. But then there's other passages, like the one we come to today, where it's difficult. Passages that I wrestle with, passages that, that are just hard and deal with hard situations. And here's one of the hardest. David has sinned, and, and facing the consequence of his sin, his child dies. And his, his child dies by the hand of the Lord. It's the Lord that afflicts the child. And in wrestling with that, it's difficult then to come up with a few points for you to apply. It's just a hard passage. But God has called us to wrestle with hard passages. And as God's Word reminds us of itself, all Scripture is inspired by God and all Scripture is profitable for us. That we might be trained in righteousness, that we might learn. And as I wrestled through this passage, my attention was drawn to David. And particularly to David's repentance. As I've mentioned already, when we survey First and Second Samuel, what really should catch our attention is how differently God deals with Saul and David. Both of these kings sin. Both of them disobey God. But God removes his anointing from Saul. God tells Saul that, that his 
family will not sit on the throne. God tells Saul that he's going to wipe out his family. And yet David, who sins, and if we're to measure those sins, he, he sins greatly. David's the one who God says of him that his descendant will sit on the throne forever. David's the one that experiences truly the forgiveness, the mercy, and the grace of God. And the question is why? And the answer is because David, I believe, truly repented. And there's evidence of that repentance in this difficult passage today. And so as we walk through today's passage, that's what I want us to think through is how do we see David's repentance? How do we know that David's repentance is genuine? And what can we then apply in our own lives as we consider our need to repent on a daily basis? And so we'll begin with the first point there in your outline about repentance, a reminder that point one, a repentance does not remove the consequence of sin. And we live in a context where often people will say, well, you just need to forgive and forget. And what they're saying is, if you truly forgive me, then there's not going to be a consequence. If you truly forgive me and forget, then, then it's as if this sin never took place. But friends, that's not a biblical understanding of forgiveness. And it's certainly not a biblical understanding of repentance. Because what we see in God's Word and what we see in relation to how God deals with David is that though David had repented, I believe genuinely, there still remains a consequence for David's sin. Now remember again the context, if we go back just a, a couple of verses to verse 13, uh, Nathan had come to David, he had told him the story of a rich man and poor man. God had used this to bring conviction to David's heart that, that he could see what he had done, that he could understand the depth of his sin. And in verse 13, David then responds by saying, I have sinned against the Lord. He understands that he has sinned. He, he is confessing his sin. He is, I believe, repenting of his sin. And then Nathan says to David that the Lord has put away your sin. You shall not die. He's telling him that, that God has forgiven him. And yet right after that, verse 14, he says, Nevertheless, because by this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord, the child who is born to you shall die. That there's going to be a consequence. And in fact, that's not the only consequence. Earlier in the passage, as we saw the discipline of the Lord leading up to David's repentance, the Lord told him what would happen in his household, how the sword would never depart from it, how there would be great division in it. And we're going to see how all these things come to fruition. But the very first consequence we see is that David and Bathsheba's son is going to die. And so then as we pick up in our passage today, we see that the Lord follows through on what He said He would do. He afflicts the child with a sickness. Now notice David's response here. And God has told him this is what's going to happen. God has told him that his child was going to die. He afflicts him with this sickness. But notice David's response to that. And I believe this is fruit of his genuine repentance. As he, he prays and he fasts. In fact, it's so intense that in verse 17 we see that the elders of his household, they, they come and they, they try to pick him up. They try to tell him, it's time for you to eat, you need some nourishment. But, but David won't move. He refuses to rise and eat. 
And he is crying out to the Lord to spare his son's life. And I believe this is evidence of his repentance, especially when you consider how differently we see David responding to this child here versus when he first found out that Bathsheba was going to have a child. And think about that for a moment. David sins with Bathsheba. The news comes to him that Bathsheba is pregnant. This means that David's going to father this child. He has a son that's going to be born to him. But remember what David does. David, in an attempt to cover his sin, essentially writes this child off. David tries to orchestrate events so that he'll never have a relationship with this child. He is ready to just hand his son over to Uriah in order to cover his sin. He's more concerned about his sin and far less concerned about the welfare of this child. It's not that he's not ready to be a parent. It's not that he doesn't have the means to take care of this son. He simply wants to cover his sin. And he's willing to go to the length of abandoning his son in order to cover his sin. And now, here we are, perhaps a year or two later, and the very child that David was so ready to just hand over to someone else to be raised by them, now he's crying out to the Lord to spare that child. You can see what's happened here in David's heart, that this is evidence of the work of the Lord. This is evidence that his heart has changed. Now he has compassion for this child. He's pouring out his heart for this child. He refuses to eat. He just wants God to heal his child. Friends, I believe that's evidence that David's heart has changed, that he has indeed repented. And yet... No amount of prayer or fasting in this situation was going to change the direction that the events would take him. Nothing was going to change the plan of God. And God's plan comes to fruition. Verses 18 through 20, we see that after seven days of sickness, the child died. Now, as I mentioned, this, this is difficult for us. It's difficult. We, we come to places in the scripture where there's a, there's a sick child and God heals them. We, we come to other places in the scripture where people are sick and, and God doesn't heal them. But it's really clear that their, their sickness is not so much by the hand of the Lord. It's just that they were sick. But, but here it's explicitly clear that this child was well and was healthy and became sick by the hand of the Lord, that David cried out to the Lord to spare the child, and that God did not. That God gave this child a sickness that led to this child's death a week later. Now, how do we reconcile that? Now, how do we process that? I read one commentator this week that said, the way we reconcile this is by considering God's mercy in taking the child's life. They pointed out that this child, were he to live, would have forever been a reminder to David and Bathsheba of their adultery, of David's murder of Uriah, that this child would have been a symbol of shame for David and for the kingdom, that God was merciful to take this child's life. 
I don't, I don't agree that that's how we reconcile this. But because this child had done nothing wrong. That this child was not the one who had sinned in a way that would lead to the child's death. That this affliction that came upon this child was because of the sin of David. David repented. But we're reminded here that his repentance did not remove the consequence of sin. How do we reconcile God taking the life of this child? I don't, I don't know fully. But I know that Scripture tells us that God's ways are not our ways. That God is good. And I know the Scripture tells us that the, the wages of sin is death. And I know that this child, whether he lived one year or a hundred years, he would have died. And I know that for every one of us in this room, death awaits us. The wages of sin is death. And the only way that we can ever be reconciled to God, the only way that we can be prepared to face God in His holiness on that day of our death is for us to respond to His mercy and His grace, for us to trust in Him, for us to walk by faith and not by sight, for us to cling to the cross of Jesus. He is the only one who can save. And while we see this hard situation, we recognize that, that in a sense what's happening here is that this child paid the price of David's sin. And when we consider that, well, well that points us towards the gospel, doesn't it? Because a thousand years later, a child would be born, the Messiah, our Lord Jesus. And that child would do no wrong. That child would grow to be a man who would do no wrong. The God-man, Jesus, our Messiah, he would live a perfect life. And yet he, God's only son, God's blameless son, he would die for our sin. And this hard text and this hard situation, there's a, there's a foretaste here that points us towards the gospel. And that reminds us of what we read in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. And speaking of our Lord, we read, For our sake God, him, God made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. And it's only that grasping this, this difficult concept of God taking the life of one who had not sinned, that we might fully understand and reconcile the gospel of our Lord Jesus, that we might then respond in repentance and faith, and that we might understand that even though we respond in repentance and faith, that doesn't remove the consequence of our sin. Today, this, this morning, there may be things in your life that, that God has burdened your heart with, your need to repent, and you need to do that. But that repentance doesn't mean those things never happen. That that repentance doesn't mean that relationships have not been severed or injured. That that repentance doesn't mean that all consequences go away and it's as if it never happened. No, that repentance means you've been made right with God. But there's still a consequence that comes. We see that in David's life and we see it in our life. We also see point two here that repentance bears fruit. One of the ways we can recognize genuine repentance is that repentance bears fruit. 
and so that the child dies. And yet David does not respond in the way that those around him expect him to respond. Note that they were afraid to tell David that their child had died. His servants had seen how David didn't respond to them, didn't want to have anything to do with them as they would come to David and implore him to get up, to rise, to eat, to rest. He wouldn't do any of that. And so now the child has died and they fear because of the intensity of David's response to the child being sick that it's going to get even worse once he realizes the child's dead. That then he might even bring himself some type of harm. But David here, he... He sees, he notices the servants whispering. And he's able to perceive what's going on here. And he just asks them directly, has the child died? And they say, yes, he's dead. And then David does the unexpected. He rises. He goes and cleans himself. He changes his clothes. He goes to the house of the Lord and he worships. And then he goes home and he eats. And this leaves his servants, perhaps leaves some of us this morning rather confused. I mean, you'll remember from Bathsheba, when Bathsheba's husband Uriah died, that there was an expected period of mourning, of grieving. It was a week long. And yet, in a sense here, we've already seen David grieving for a week. He's been grieving there, he's been praying there, he's been fasting there, and now the child has died and it seems his grief is over. And so his servants come to him. They, they don't understand this. They, they bring this to his attention. They want to reconcile and understand why. And you'll notice his response here. Verse 22, David says, While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. For I said, Who knows whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live. And that there, side note, is... I think perhaps a model for us in ways in how we are to pray at the bedside of someone who is anguishing and dying. We, we don't know what's going to happen. We, we don't know how God's grace may be evident in their life or death. We, we cry out to God that he would spare them. David was crying out to God that, that the child would live. But he says, but now he's dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he will not return to me. David's explanation here is that, that he's going to see his son again. But he's not going to see him this side of eternity. That, that he can't, through any prayer, any fasting, any action of his own part, he, he can't bring his son back. That where his son is, one day he will go. I mean, it's, it's really a remarkable statement by David. It's a statement that indicates his, his trust in God as the God of salvation. As the God in whom his faith can rest. As the God who has secured his child who is passed at a young age. And as the God who will secure him in his salvation. That one day where his child is, he too will go. It's a fruit, it's an evidence, again, of David's repentance. But I think perhaps the, the greatest fruit here is what we see in verse 20. That after his child died and after he rose and he washed himself, before he goes back to his house and eats, verse 20 says, And he went to the house of the Lord and worshipped. This, 
Consider the, the gravity of that for a moment. His son died. And David worshipped God. Friends, that, that, that's not the fruit of a changed heart. I, I don't know what it is. I mean, you think about how we respond today when something happens to our child. How, how difficult it is to wrestle with that. How difficult it would be, how difficult it is to know that the sovereign hand of God at any moment can, can rescue their child from their affliction. And that God, in His wisdom and His sovereignty, He chooses not to do that. And then to face what, what parents perhaps fear more than anything, that the death of a child and His immediate response is to worship God. An unrepentant heart doesn't do that. An unrepentant heart shakes a fist at God. An unrepentant heart, and even at times a repentant heart, says to God, why? Why would you let this happen? We, we wrestle to understand these things. But in our wrestle, we need to understand that, that it's not unique to us that we see this wrestling taking place over and over through the pages of Scripture. And this, you can write in your notes, Lamentations chapter 3. I would encourage you to, to go to that entire chapter today and look at it. But just consider in, in Lamentations chapter 3, we have Jeremiah wrestling with God. And wrestling whether God indeed is good to him. And, and, and being honest before the Lord in how he feels... And he says it this way in Lamentations 3, beginning in verse 10. He says, God is like a bear. Picture this for a moment. He's like a bear lying in wait for me, a lion in hiding. He turned aside my steps. He tore me to pieces. He has made me desolate. He bent his bow and set me as a target for his arrow. I mean, it doesn't get any more honest than that. Jeremiah looks to God and says, God, I feel like you are a wild animal hiding around a corner waiting to rip me to pieces. And that's, that's how we feel in our suffering at times, isn't it? Certainly when we watch those we love suffer. And as it seems the only news we ever get is bad news. And perhaps this is how David felt while he laid there on the ground and he cried out to God and he prayed to God for his child's life. Perhaps he's just, he's just viewing God in this way and waiting for God to just rip him to pieces. Because that's how we feel sometimes. Life is hard. And it gets harder. The people we love suffer. You cry out to God, and at times He doesn't spare them. At times it gets worse. The cancer comes back. The surgery is unsuccessful. The treatment plan fails. And you feel like 
God is about to just rip you to pieces. That's how Jeremiah felt. Perhaps that's how David felt. Perhaps that's how some of you feel today. But if you continue in Lamentations chapter 3, what you recognize is that Jeremiah's faith was not driven by how he felt. And I think what we see in 2 Samuel 12 is that David's faith is not driven by how he felt. And friends, today, our faith should not be driven by how we feel. It should be rooted and driven by the facts of who God is. And while feelings are significant, I mean, Jeremiah, he just pours it out here. And we should as well. That's part of prayer. We're just laying it out there before the Lord. While that's significant, notice how the heart of Jeremiah is turned as he considers the knowledge of who God truly is. Lamentations 3 verse 21. That same passage where Jeremiah says, God, I feel like you're a bear. You're waiting to rip me to pieces. He says this, but this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. The Lord is my portion, says my soul. Therefore, I will hope in you. Friends, that's, that, that's a mark of a heart that's repentant and is trusting in God. That, that even when it feels like the bottom has fallen out, even when it feels like God is ripping us apart, that, that our heart and our mind turn to worship God, even in the midst of suffering. To trust in the steadfast love and faithfulness of God, even in the midst of suffering. David, his child dies. There's no indication he's even buried his child yet. And he goes and he worships God. Why? Because that, that repentance that had taken place, the fruit of that repentance, I believe, was a heart that was trusting in the God who saves. He's able to hope in the Lord because of this. We're able to hope in the Lord because of this. And an evidence that our hope is in the Lord is not so much how we respond when everything's going well, it's how we respond when everything falls apart. Now that, that shows where our hope truly lies. And here David's hope is in the Lord. And, and that's because of that repentance. It, it hasn't removed the consequence of a sin, but it is certainly bearing fruit. And then point three. Point three. God is merciful to those who repent. God is merciful to those who repent. So how do we see God's mercy in this passage? Well, notice God's merciful provision this relationship that started out in great sin and disobedience to God, God redeems and now blesses. David and Bathsheba have a son. They name him Solomon. You know that name. Solomon will be significant in our story moving forward. He was the provision of God's mercy in David's life and David's home. David had done nothing to deserve another child. And he did not deserve another son, but God showed his mercy to David and that he did not give him what he deserved. He gave him what he did not deserve. He showed him kindness and grace and mercy and gave him another son. Not only that, verse 26, the Lord gave David victory over the Ammonites. 
Now remember how we got here. Just a couple of chapters ago, at the beginning of chapter 10, as David is showing that steadfast kindness that God had shown him, he's showing it in turn to others. He shows it to Mephibosheth, the crippled son of Jonathan. He goes to show that kindness to the Ammonites, but the Ammonites refuse that kindness. They go to war with David and the Israelites. And so when all this is taking place, remember, at the time when he should have been out there in that battle, he was home on his rooftop, lusting after Bathsheba. And while all these events are transpiring, while he is coming up with with orchestrating these ways to cover his sin, it's all taking place in the context of this war with the Ammonites. And that's how Uriah dies. It's in this war with the Ammonites. And that war continues after he marries Bathsheba and after they have a child and after that child dies. David doesn't deserve to win this war. David deserves to have his enemies conquer him. But God's merciful to him. And he gives him victory over the Ammonites. Even when you read the particulars here of what he he got, Joab's the one who wins the battle. (laughs) Joab's the one that deserved the credit. And yet, what does Joab do? He calls for David. He invites him and essentially says, the battle's won You go in and finish it off. You you declare the victory, David. May this victory be in your name. I believe, again, it's just a picture of God's mercy to David. And yet, there, there may be an indication just right at the end of this passage that perhaps this mercy that David had received, he doesn't reciprocate to others. For whatever reason, it this passage includes the detail of what takes place after the battle was won, after the victory is declared, after he goes in and takes the crown off the head of the king, and that crown is placed on David's head. And there's these verses here that just shine a little bit of a light that we can see what takes place and how in response to this victory that he didn't deserve, in the midst of a situation where God's been merciful merciful to him, he's not merciful to the Ammonites. I mean, remember before, he was, he was ready to show them mercy and grace and steadfast kindness. And you might expect that now, in defeating them, that he would, he would show some of that kindness, but it appears he doesn't. He brought the spoil out of the city. Verse 31 tells us he takes the people who were in it, and he puts them in harsh labor. Now, there's a picture here that just emphasizes the intensity of the harshness in the way he dealt with the Ammonites. Now, historically, that's to be expected. Historically, that's kind of how kings dealt with cities they defeated. But in the context of David receiving such great mercy from God, it's kind of an indication to us that he doesn't turn around and show that mercy to others. It's, It's the continual reminder to us that The best of men are men at best. It's a reminder to us that that we can come to church this morning and we can receive the mercy, the grace, and the forgiveness of God and then we can go out and not show that mercy, grace, and forgiveness to others. It's a reminder to us that we're capable of being forgiven much but then turning around and forgiving little. It's a reminder to us 
of our need to trust in Jesus and to hope in Him and to cling to the cross and to forgive as we've been forgiven, to show mercy as we've been shown mercy, to show grace as we've been shown grace. And we can do none of this in the flesh. It can only be done as we trust in Christ. And so our call today is the same as every Lord's Day, that our trust might be in Him. You'd stand together as we pray to that end together and respond to His Word together. Father, You have made it evident to us in today's passage that You showed David mercy and grace and forgiveness. That David, in turn, he, he repented and that there was genuine fruit of that repentance and yet there was still consequence. But David didn't shake his fist at you. He didn't grumble and complain. He, he accepted that consequence and he worshipped you in your holiness. And so I pray that we would worship you today. That even in dealing with disappointments and suffering, even as we deal with the consequences of, of our sin and the sin of others, pray that we would worship you rightly understanding that Jesus on the cross has dealt with all our sin. And Lord, I do ask if there's anyone here who's yet put their hope and trust in Jesus that today would be the day of salvation for them. That they would taste and see that the Lord is good. That they would understand that you demonstrate your love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That they would see and understand that if we confess Jesus as Lord and believe in our hearts, that you raised Jesus from the dead, that we will be saved, that, that we might fully comprehend that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Lord, help us through the power of your Spirit to call on the name of the Lord now. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. And church family and guests, we're going to respond to God's Word to worship. And as we worship, if the Lord is leading you to come for any reason today, to come and and respond to the gospel of Jesus, to confess Christ as your Lord, to follow through in obedience and baptism, to start the process of joining this church, or just to pray or have someone pray for you, then we invite you to come. And we invite everyone to sing and worship. Mm -hmm.